Okay. All right, well, the last Sunday uh, that I was in this pulpit, which was a couple weeks ago now, right? Uh, Ken did the last two and just uh, in preparation for him being gone uh, for this Sunday. And, uh, but we began the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we talked about the background of the occultic practices of the culture of Ephesus. We talked about the history of Paul's uh, ministering in Ephesus, in Ephesus around, uh, are found in Acts 19, uh, Paul's third missionary journey, including all the miraculous things that he that occurred with his visit there, and how the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I pointed out that I love that uh, part in Acts 19:20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, Acts 19.20. And it's our hope that the word of the Lord would continue to increase in our community. Beginning with us here and spreading out and beyond, prevailing mightily. We talked about the overarching purpose of writing to the Ephesian church. Uh, that being to encourage the faithful saints coming out of cultures spiritually and being surrounded by such cultures as as Ephesus, different ideas can creep into the church, can it? It bears establishing or reestablishing core truths that the congregation may be encouraged and well-grounded that they might not be blown by every wind of doctrine that comes their way. Not the least of which is the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of God's supreme power or authority, not only in saving and appointing Paul as, quote, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Ephesians 1.1, but also in appointing or choosing us who are in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Indeed, he not only blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, lacking nothing, but in choosing us before the foundation of the world, he purposed that we should be holy and blameless before him, verse 4. That is, those who are in Christ. That's really the key phrase. In Christ. Especially through verse 14 of Ephesians 1, which we'll look at throughout the weeks ahead. The next two verses that we're going to be looking at today are sister verses to the previous four. uh, Previous verse 4, that is, the verse that says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In the ESV and most modern versions, verses 5 and 6 begin at the end of verse 4. 
the sentence beginning with in love, verse 4, he predestined us, verse 5. And there's a couple things to note in this odd break in the ESV. Because usually we don't see a, a verse starting in the middle of another verse, right? There's just a couple things to note in this odd break in the ESV. In number one, the original Greek verses 3 through 4, in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. There's no punctuation. That's the original Greek in uh, those verses. And number two, the verse numbers that we see in our Bibles that you see in there, those numbers, are not inspired of God. They were added in, in the New Testament by a man named Robert Stevens in the year 1551. <clears throat> and this wasn't necessarily a bad move, uh, as this can help in locating verses, in, and it can help in Bible memorization and stuff like that. But it really is a matter of interpretation uh, as to where the breaks should be for the English-speaking world. Most would agree with the breaks. Uh, most would agree with the breaks in the King James Version, but in rare occasions such as here, the ESV, along with many other. Uh, translations uh, ends verse 4 as such. And this is, this is what the ESV states again. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. <clears throat> That's where it ends in the ESV. And whereas the King James would say, uh, oh, let's see here. The King James would end, I'm not going to read King James, but I'll end it with the King James. It would say something like this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, period. That's how the King James ends that verse. Now, I don't believe, and you know, I'm just kind of going over just a couple technical things about this because I think it's important, but I don't believe anyone nor do I believe we should be too dogmatic about it. Uh, it could go either way. Well, why do I say that? Number one, again, there's no break in the Greek. And number two, we would have to argue that God in love predestined us for adoption, but he didn't in love choose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that's a foolish argument to, to make and that I'm not willing to make. Uh, God does all things in love for his children, including disciplining us, f f quote, for our good that we may share in his holiness, Hebrews 12.10 says. You know, how much more does God, does he in love choose us in him before the foundation of the world. So what does uh, verses 5 and 6 say in full? Let's read that from the ESV. It says this, uh, starting in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we continue really with the spiritual blessings 
that are ours presently who are in Christ. Not the least of which is, quote, our adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Unquote. This is really the hub of the message today upon which three points rest. Our adoption to himself was predestined by God. Our adoption was according to his will. And our adoption to himself was according to his grace. In keeping with this theme of adoption, if we slow down and meditate on this, or carefully think through this, a couple of questions might arise. What exactly are we adopted from? What are we adopted from? And what does it mean to be a son or to be adopted children of God? How do we know that we're His? Ultimately, Jew and Gentile, or non-Jews like ourselves, were adopted from slavery to sin. The law of God, namely the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie, commandment nine, you shall not steal, commandment eight, you shall not murder, commandment six, was given to Israel, the Jewish people. The law of God was written on the hearts of us Gentiles, as well as Romans 2.15 states, to know right from wrong. Now the law is good. The law is good in that it acts as a buffer against sin. But the law is not good in the sense that one is not able to be made righteous by keeping it. It only exposes the absolute sinfulness of our sin, exposing how far we fall short of God's standard of moral perfection. So we were, in effect, imprisoned under sin on one hand, falling short of God's glory, and on the other hand, we were imprisoned under the law, which was keeping us in check, which again is good, but of which was also weak in being able to make us righteous before God. As Galatians 3 explains, and verses like Romans 8.3 mentions. Let's turn to Galatians 3, which is just back a page or two. Now I'm going to hop around chapter 3 for the moment. I'm going to hop around a little bit. Now, what does Scripture mean by we in that we, past tense, were imprisoned under such things, namely sin and the law as found in verses 22 to 23? Who's the we? It's speaking of those who are, quote, Abraham's offspring, 
according to promise, as Galatians 3.29 states. Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise in Galatians 3.29, which was promised to then named Abram long ago in Genesis 12.3, that in Abram, quote, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what then does Scripture promise to to the heirs? What does Scripture promise to the heirs? It's redemption from the curse of the law through Christ and the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Let's read Galatians 3 through 14. Uh, I'm, I'm pardon me. Galatians three thirteen through fourteen. It says this: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree." So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised holy the promised spirit through faith holy spirit Christ who is the offspring singular of Abraham Christ who is the offspring of Abraham as Galatians 3:16 states It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. It's referring to Christ. Galatians 3.29, in full, states, quote, and if you are Christ's, we could safely say, if you are truly in Christ, part of the body of Christ, Quote, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, unquote. Now, there's so much packed in Galatians 3 that I would love to get into. But for now, we're really just trying to get to the heart of this adoption spoken of in Ephesians 1.5. Paul, by the Spirit of God, has a beautiful summary of Galatians 3 uh, at the beginning of chapter 4 pertaining to this adoption. And I'm going to resist the urge to add commentary to these verses, but again, it's a, it's a, uh, a summary of chapter 3. And... With all that was said prior, I trust that God will make things clear to you as we meditate on these verses together as I read, if we're carefully paying attention. You know, Paul begins with an illustration. So let's read Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. 
though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In love, Ephesians 1.5, in love, he, the father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And now we come to the first point on which our adoption rests. If you are indeed in Christ here today, and uh, we'll go through these fairly quickly. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The word predestined means to determine beforehand. The same idea is expressed in Romans 9. Paul addresses this in the same context of, quote, the children of promise, unquote, who are counted as the offspring, those in Christ. Quote, not the children of the flesh, unquote, that is, not those who are according to the flesh who have Abraham as their great, great to the power of whatever grandfather, but those who are in Christ by faith. They are the children of God. Paul recalls in Romans 9, back in the book of Genesis, where, where God predestined Jacob. He predestined Jacob to carry the line of Abraham's offspring. That is Christ, singular, right? Which, according to the flesh, should have been Esau, as he was born first. God chose Jacob over Esau, quote, though they were not yet born, nor had they done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him, because of him who calls. As Romans 9.11 states, now, some people have the idea that God, being all-knowing, that is omniscient, quote, looks down the corridor of time 
seeing who would choose him and those of their own free will and those who are the ones whom God predestines or determines beforehand to be redeemed from slavery through Jesus Christ uh, by faith. Now we have to be careful. There's nothing in our text of Ephesians 1.5 that indicates us doing anything here at all. It's all God. It's all according to His will. Just like Romans 9. Which brings us to our second point on which our adoption rests. Our adoption was according to His will. Our adoption was not according to our will. Indeed, there's several verses that indicate what our will was. Our true disposition before Christ redeemed us who are in Christ. Not the least of which is Romans 3, 12, or 10 to 12, which states, quote, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That is you and I outside of Christ. And if it wasn't for God who predestines His children according to the purpose of His will, there would be no hope for any of us. As John 6.44 reminds us, from Jesus' words, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, me draws him. This drawing is not wooing. It is God pulling us in. The same Greek term for drawing is used in John 21.6. In the ESV, the same, uh, the same Greek term is translated as hall. So it's the exact same term, draw, hall. It's the same Greek term in Ephesians 21.6 where the disciples were unable to haul or pull in the net of fish that Jesus blessed them with. It would make for a pretty silly picture for the disciples to be wooing the the fish into the boat. Wouldn't it? You know, come on, come on, please, just come on in, fishies. You know, it's not wooing. They were unable to pull. God pulls his children in. Some may say, quote, well, we have to believe. We need to have faith in Christ, unquote. And you most certainly are right. You're absolutely right. But even faith is a gift from God. 
As Philippians 1.29 states, quote, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It is all of His grace. Indeed, it is all to the praise of His glorious grace. Unquote. Which brings us to our third point on which our adoption rests. Our adoption to Himself was according to His grace. Let's read Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. It says this, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now the word glorious in the Greek is doxa. It looks like doxa. D-O-X-A, but it's pronounced doxa. Which according to Strong's Concordance is translated as glory. can be translated also as honor. Doxa can also be translated as praise. The word doxa is where we get the term doxology from. Defined as, quote, a liturgical expression of praise to God. So Paul really is breaking out in doxology, in glorifying him, the Father, in honor and praise for his grace or God's unmerited favor. Indeed, it is a miracle of his grace to save wretched and sinful men like you and I, once at war with Him in our self-righteousness and sin, nevertheless adopting us as sons through Christ, rescuing us from slavery to sin through no merit of our own, but solely on the merits of Christ and what he accomplished in living a life without sin in our stead. In bearing the wrath of God on the cross for our sins. In our stead, dying, then rising from the grave. Seated at the right hand of the Father, defeating death, that you and I, by faith in his name, may be declared righteous. Before God. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Second Corinthians ten seventeen. Now what do we do with all this? You know, to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, this world can inundate us with trials and discouragement. When our eyes are on ourselves and what we do or have done, we can get pretty discouraged as we see all of our shortcomings and sins. Or even prideful in comparing ourselves with others, which 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says is not wise. 
when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, we will find that we are able to, quote, run with endurance, unquote, through it all. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. For he has done it all for us already. Jesus is our confidence. Fix our eyes on Christ. To those outside of Christ, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is your hope in your works? In what you do? Hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? You will never meet God's standard of righteousness, which is absolute sinless perfection. And as of now, as a result of your sin, as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, whether it's lying, looking with lust, stealing, putting other things before God in your life, taking the Lord's name in vain, etc., the wrath of God abides on you. John 3.36 And the wages or payment for your sin is death. Romans 6.23 Eternity in hell. There is only one that was absolutely perfect without sin and that is Jesus Christ. This is what Christ commands of you despite your sin. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Turn from sin, call upon Christ by faith, and be reconciled with God. Now I'll close with this verse. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just give you thanks and praise for your word. God, it's the desire of your children to live holy, upright, blameless lives that bring glory to your name. Lord, as you say in your word that man shall not live by every uh, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just uh, being filled with it, the richness of your word, to give us life and to correct us where we need correction and exhort us and, uh, and reprove us. God, we just pray that, that, that the, what was uh, brought forth today, um, you know, we trust that you, you say in your word that your word does not go out uh, void, but will accomplish what it purposes. 
Lord, help our diet not just to be here, but also in our homes uh, with our families and in our personal time as well, God. Uh, We just thank you for it. And uh, we pray that we might bring you glory as we not only are hearers of your word, but also doers of your word in uh, um, uh, serving those around us and, and just in obedience to your word. God, be with us throughout the week, we pray. Uh, May you be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's um, see here.